Thank you, Mike and Christy. Well, good morning. I'd like to welcome you to our morning service. Uh, this week, we're going to be in a little bit of a transition. Since it seems like a lot of our sermons are going to be recorded for the next little while, we decided to try to find a series that we could finish in just a few weeks, and, and the book of James seems to fit the bill. James is um, written by a man who simply calls himself James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what, what James is that? Well, there's probably only one James who could just simply call himself James and everybody else would know who he's talking about. And that would be James, the brother of Jesus Christ and the son of, um, I just about said William and Mary, Joseph and Mary. So better not say William and Mary, right? But uh, the book of James was probably the first book written in the New Testament. James himself died in AD 62 he was thrown off the pinnacle of the temple by the, by the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And um, he most likely wrote it before the Jerusalem Council of AD 48 uh, and mentioned in Acts 15 or else we would probably see some details of it in, um, in his book that he wrote. Uh, therefore, James is almost certainly written in the early to mid 40s, which puts it several years before Paul wrote any of his epistles, and probably somewhere around 12 years or so uh, after Jesus died and rose and then went on to heaven. He said that he wrote the book to the Jewish Christians of the dispersion. Now, most of you know, if you've read the book of Acts, that as Christianity grew in Jerusalem, so did the persecution. You can remember that Peter was arrested and, and some of the other disciples and apostles were questioned by authorities. And as that persecution increased, the, um, the, the Christians in Jerusalem began to flee that persecution into areas of Judea and Samaria and on into Galilee. James's letter is one of the most quoted books of the whole Bible, actually. And it's filled with famous phrases and, and quotations that, that have entered into our, our Christian conversation. For example, uh, faith produces endurance, or God cannot be tempted, or every good and perfect gift comes from above, or be slow to quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Another one that we commonly say is, be doers of the word and not hearers only. I've heard many people say, even the demons believe and shudder. We say, faith without works is dead. And of course, uh, many of us have quoted, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And so there's all these commonly um, quoted parts of James that we're very familiar with, but then James also leaves us with some real head scratchers. For example, um, does he really have it out for rich people? Does he really believe that the anointing of sick people will do something? 
Does James teach that if you have enough faith that you will be healed? And then there are larger, even more um, pointed questions such as, why does James hardly talk about the cross at all? Or um, does he understand the gospel differently than some of the other New Testament writers? Uh, a, a lot of a lot of it's been written about the difference between James and Paul in their concept of salvation. But putting all that aside, James is an intensely practical book filled with exhortations to Christians to live out that Christian life that has been given to them in Jesus Christ. And, and so when you read James, you find that he, more than any other of the New Testament books, alludes back to and quotes Jesus in his earthly ministry. And so for these reasons, many people have called the book of James the Proverbs of the New Testament. James is highly relevant to the Christian life. Unlike most of the other books in the New Testament, James is not trying to give a theology of the gospel or even give a presentation of the gospel. He is writing to people that know the gospel and believe the gospel, and his goal is to help them become followers of Jesus Christ. And what we find when we read James then is we, we could almost characterize it as a word picture of the gospel itself. For example, the theme of James, which is uh, James 2.26, is just an incredible picture that you could spend a lot of time on. James 2.26 says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. Think about that picture with me for just a minute, will you? You can have a body and if there's no soul inside that body, then it's simply just a corpse. It's not even a person. It's dead. And James is saying that you can have a profession of faith, but if there are no works, if there's no fruit of the Spirit that backs up that profession, it's simply just a profession as well. And so uh, because of these things, we are entitling this series snapshots of true faith. You see, true faith is, is lived out in everyday life, especially in the face of trials and persecutions. And when we live out that faith, um, we, we demonstrate by our good works the faith that's in us, and we also demonstrate the justification that we have in Jesus Christ. And so throughout this book, we will be looking at, a, at snapshots of the faith. And one more note, uh, when I say we, I'm not talking about we as in just you and I, because Ryder Williams will be preaching a couple of the passages as well as we go through James together on Sunday mornings. Well, with that as a very long introduction to the book, let's read the first eight verses of James. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. 
For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The title of our sermon today is True Faith in Trials. We're gonna be asking the question, what does true faith look like in the midst of trials? And so this is our first snapshot of true faith. We're gonna take a snapshot of what true faith looks like in the midst of trials. And what we're gonna see is that Christians should respond to trials by rejoicing at the maturity that they can bring, and at the same time, they ask God for wisdom in those trials. And so true faith rejoices during trials. Now, what James says is count it all joy. Have you ever, um, one, have you ever thought about joy and what it means to be joyful? Joy, if you really study it, tends to be a strictly Christian term. And in, in Christianity, I'm sure you've heard uh, similar things such as this. Uh, happiness is a bubbly, circumstantial feeling that comes and goes, but joy is a deep-seated and enduring affection that endures. Uh, how many of you have heard that? How many of you have said that? Interestingly enough, that is a very recent definition of joy and happiness. If you look in the Bible, there is literally no way to distinguish between what the Bible uh, defines joy and what the Bible defines as happiness. And when you read the, the older works, when you read the sermons of Jonathan Edwards, and when you read the writings of Charles Wesley, and when you read Charles Spurgeon's sermons, you're gonna find that they use the terms joy and happiness interchangeably. When you look back in the Old Testament, you see that Deuteronomy says that the nation of Israel is happy because God saved them. He said that several times in Deuteronomy. You're a happy nation because you have a God who saved you. You go to the New Testament and you see that, that um, the Bible tells us in the New Testament that joy is found in the Lord. And so when you look at the two of those together and what the Bible has to say, what you find is that there's not a distinction between joy and happiness, but there is the single foundation. And the single foundation of Christian joy and Christian happiness is the Lord Jesus Christ, or you could say God, God. The foundation of our joy and happiness is God. And so joy and happiness are found in God alone. Now let's think about James for just a minute. Verse number two, when he says, count it all joy when you meet various trials and of various kinds, what he's 
let's think about for just a minute what he is not asking them to do. He is not asking them to enjoy their trials. Nobody enjoys a trial, do they? I know I don't. What he is enjoining Christians to do is to have a settled um, contentment and, and a uh, thankful, steady spirit and a thankfulness towards God in that trial. As a matter of fact, he says, count it all joy. Very interesting little note about that word all. That word all, that word translated all, literally means entire or, or pure. So what James is saying is, brothers, count it pure joy when you encounter trials. Have pure joy when you encounter trials. And when you put it that way, that would cause us to ask maybe a couple questions. Number one, how? And number two, why? How and why will we consider it pure joy when we encounter trials? And the answer is very simple. Are you ready? Because God is God. God is the one who gives wisdom generously according to verse number five. He gives every good and perfect gift according to verse number 17. He gave us salvation through his word in verse number 18. He is the God of great reversals. The poor are made rich and the rich are made poor. And he gives more grace to those that humble themselves in, in chapter four and verse number six. And so we, we count it pure joy in trials because God is God and he's giving us a wonderful gift. Now let's think about that for just a minute. Have you, ever, have you ever seen somebody who's been told, uh, you know what, you need surgery and there's gonna be a recovery time and they get excited about it. You know, yay, I get to have surgery. Yay, I get to recover for a very long time. Yay, my life is gonna be disrupted. Nobody, nobody has joy in that. But what do they have joy in? They have joy in knowing that the surgery is going to fix something that's wrong with their bodies, right? Whether it's knee replacement, hip replacement, cancer removal, whatever it is, it, the, the joy is not in the suffering of the surgery and the recovery. The joy, the joy is in knowing what is the end game behind it. And this is the same reason that a generous God, a loving God, and a good God blesses us with trials, because trials test your faith. And when your faith is tested, it produces endurance. Now, endurance or perseverance or steadfastness, whatever translation of the Bible you use, whatever it says, is simply patience in action. Now, I want you to notice something about verse number three. When he, when, he, when he says verse number three, he says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Did you catch those two little words? You know, because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And what he's telling 
the Jewish believers who have been scattered all about Palestine, he's saying that your, you know that your, the testing of your faith proves that faith. It proves the genuineness of your profession. It, it, it's by showing your endurance and trials, you're showing that you are actually in Jesus Christ. Jesus said that so many times in, in his earthly ministry. Matter of fact, if you remember in Mark 4 and verse number 17, when Jesus is explaining the parables of the soil and he's explaining the rocky soil, he says this. He says, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, they immediately fall away. You see, when somebody who professes faith but doesn't really have faith encounters a trial that is brought on by the word of God or because they profess the word of God, they check out almost immediately and, and you can't find them anymore. And so when you endure trials because of the word of God, it proves that you are a Christian. But here's the thing. Endurance is not the goal. James has something far greater in mind. Endurance is not the goal. Perfection is. Look at verse number four. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so what God is doing, if you look at this verse carefully, what God is doing in your life, when he brings trials your way, he's causing you to endure and he is in the process of rounding out your character to conform it to the image of Jesus Christ. So the test proves your faith, it increases your endurance, and by increasing your endurance, it makes you more like Jesus Christ, and that is his goal. Listen, God has a unique mission for each one of you. Yes, we know that God's general mission for everybody is to, everybody who's a Christian is to conform them to the image of Jesus Christ. But God, beyond that, God has a specific path for you that only you can accomplish and he is training you for that path. We see very vivid illustrations of this with the Old Testament saints. Think with me for just a moment about Abraham. Remember Abraham? What, what were his tests? Well, there were two big tests that Abraham had. One was barrenness, and one was that he didn't, have, he didn't plant a flag. He didn't stop anywhere and have a permanent home. Abraham was always moving around. But do you remember his big test? Something that, that he kept being tested with over and over and over was barrenness. God came to him when he was 75 years old and promised him that he would have a son and that that son would be a father of a great nation. And then God tested his faith and his endurance for 25 years, getting him ready to father the son. So for, for 25 years, God tested his faith uh, in the promise of a son. Do you remember Joseph? Joseph, as a teenager, was told by God in a dream that he would indeed rule over his brothers and even his mom and dad. 
And for more than a decade, Joseph had that promise delayed and God tested his faith by putting him through slavery and then in the prison for a long time before he rose to fame and prominence. You remember David. David was the youngest son of his father, Jesse, and was anointed by Samuel the prophet when he was a teenager. And it was not until he was in his 30s that he became king. And in the between time, he spent most of his time running for his life. Yet it was during that time that he wrote some of the most beloved psalms, such as uh, Psalm 19 and, and Psalm 23 and Psalm 63, and I could go on and on. Psalms, that, <coughs> excuse me, that are very dear to our heart, uh, David wrote. And, and what do we see when we look at the lives of these Old Testament saints? What we need to remember is that the Old Testament saints' stories are earthly pictures of New Testament spiritual realities. And so they endured trials and suffering before they rose to prominence. In the New Testament, we endure trials and suffering in Jesus Christ, and one day in heaven, we will have glory and we will have the reward for um, what, what our faith in Jesus Christ. But in the meantime, we must endure um, suffering. So God's greatest goal for you is for you to become Christ-like. His greatest goal for you is his glory. Therefore, we must follow the pattern of Christ. Christ suffered and was glorified. And dear Christian, the trial of your faith works in you to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ, and one day you will have more glory than you can ever imagine. That's why Paul said in Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Paul understands that any suffering that we do now pales in the comparison to the glory that we will see the glory that we'll receive when we go to heaven. And so um, suffering um, is, is a means of rejoicing for us. It brings us joy for these very reasons. But the second thing, very quickly, is that true faith receives wisdom. True faith receives wisdom. What do I mean by that? Well, let's look very quickly at verses five to eight. If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You know, verse number five, I have prayed innumerable times in my life. I have asked the Lord for wisdom. And when I ask him for wisdom, I always remind him, Lord, I'm asking for wisdom and you promise you give it generously, you give it liberally, you give it in great heaps. And so Lord, will you please give me wisdom? And James promises that when we call 
on God for wisdom, he'll give it. And he'll give it generously, and he'll give it without ever rebuking us for asking for wisdom. And this is great news for the believer. And I want you to get this, because this is very important. It's great news for us, because no matter how hard we try to work towards perfection, we cannot fill our lack of wisdom without God's generosity. So as we move towards Christ-likeness, we need wisdom in moving towards Christ-likeness, and that can only occur when God gives us that ability, that Christ-likeness, that gener- and he gives it generously. James directs us also to ask in faith and don't doubt. And so we read these words, which I'm not gonna spend time really um, explaining too much, that talks about a, a man being tossed to and fro by the waves, and he talks about a double-minded man. Um, I'm just gonna kind of describe what that looks like in the Christian life and, and rather than explain what the verses actually mean. When you think about this, and when you read these, what are you to think about these? Well, a double-minded man or somebody who's tossed to and fro is, is describing somebody who's unwilling to commit to anything. You know, they don't wanna to commit to Jesus Christ because the cost is too great, and yet they don't wanna go this way because they know there's Jesus Christ, and so they do nothing. They just kind of sit there. Or maybe it's somebody who not only is unwilling to commit, but they're not to Jesus or to the world, but they don't commit to anything to church, and so they do nothing because they're unreliable. Or maybe a double-minded man is somebody who's torn between sin and obedience. You know, on the one hand, uh, they're reluctant to let go of earthly pleasures, and on the other hand, they're reluctant to follow Jesus Christ, and they want to have one foot in the world. Someone or maybe it's somebody who sporadically attends church but doesn't really commit to allowing God to take control of their life. Do, do any of these things describe you? All of us might be there temporarily or momentarily, but what describes the tenor of your life right now? Are you wholeheartedly following Jesus Christ? Have you counted the cost? Or are you double-minded? Are you somebody who just kind of doubts the character of God? Let me close with this illustration. Suppose there's a runner running a race, and that runner really loved flowers. And as the runner's going along in the race, he's winning the race, he's in first place, and all of a sudden, right over here, he sees a group of flowers right beside the road. Not only are they flowers, but they're roses, which is his favorite kind of flower. And so he veers off the, the path, and starts to bend over to sniff the roses because he really loves the roses. And all of a sudden, uh, another person comes along and just knocks him over, just knocks him to the ground. And he gets hurt. And as a matter of fact, he gets hurt so bad that sniffing roses is no longer one of his priorities. And all of a sudden he realizes, wait a minute, I'm in a race, I need to get going. And so he jumps back up. The roses have lost their allure and he begins to run the race and begins reaching for the prize and eventually wins the prize. That, dear believer, is sort of a, an analogy of what our Christian life is like. You see, when life is good, 
we like to go sniff the roses or we like to go look this way or we like to do that thing and we get our eyes off of the prize and the prize is Jesus Christ. And so God brings trials our way. He brings difficulties our way, not because he's mean, not because he's not good, but because he is his desires to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ, and that's the goal. I wanna leave you with the words of Hebrews 12, one and two. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a crowd of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That describes the ultimate goal of every believer. We are running a race. God has set a race before each one of us and while the general characteristics are the same, we become more conformed to the image of God, and eventually we step out of this world and into permanent glory where we're with God forevermore. The specific details of everyone's life is a little bit different because everyone's trial is slightly different, everyone's difficulty is slightly different, and everyone's path that they take is just very slightly different. But for right now, dear believer, Remember this, that if you are enduring for Jesus Christ and you're counting it joy, you, you understand that God is conforming you to his image and that's a joyful thing that God is interacting with you that way, then understand that God is showering you with wisdom and one day he will shower you with glory and that is why we can count it joy and that's a, the first snapshot of the Christian life. Let me ask you this question. Are you counting it joy? Are there, can you think right now where maybe a difficulty you're going through has caused you to get your eyes off of something that's less important and get your eyes on what's most important, which is Jesus Christ? If that is true of your life, then maybe you could bow your head right now and thank the Lord that he loves you so much that he's willing to send the trial your way to conform you to his image and point you to the ultimate goal, the prize of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the, the simple, practical teaching of the book of James. None of us enjoy trials, but Lord, these trials that come our way are conforming us to the image of your son, and so, Lord, I pray that we will count it joy. I pray that we will be joyful at the end product, but not um, trying to enjoy the trial because no trial is really um, that much fun. Lord, I thank you that, um, that you're so loving and so kind. And I pray that as we go through the book of James together, that these practical snapshots will help us to uh, just... I love you more and become more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, your son, in his name, amen.